Hello, everyone. This is Headcase Podcast. I'm here with Jack Leary. Hey. And his friend, Drew Beirut. Hello. And My dear, dear friend. Yes. Jack is, is his best friend, so I'm going to let Jack um, introduce him. Yeah, um, Drew is one of my closest and best friends. We met uh, freshman year of college at Emerson College. Um, and other than being my best friend, um, <laughs> he happens to be bipolar as well. And uh, we've always had a close uh, kind of relationship and been able to talk about this. But this is really the first time that Drew's talked about this on a public platform. So um, Thank you for coming on. No, I'm so happy. I've been wanting to take the steps to like get into advocacy, and this is the first time and my first podcast experience. So it's like double intriguing. A for double me. whammy. No, double good whammy. <laughs> double <Yeah>. whammy. <laughs> double good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Drew, I know your story, but um, I guess start from the beginning in terms of when you first uh, found out. Uh, what you were dealing with and what that was like, and then we'll, we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. So, like a lot of mental health um, disorders, bipolar is one that typically onsets when you're 18, like right on the cusp of adulthood. And 18 is typically like a really transitional moment in a lot of people's lives. You're between mm-hmm. high school and college, and there's a lot of unknown in front of you. And new terrain on the way. The tricky thing with bipolar is the diagnosis requires that there's at least two instances of mania to confirm a diagnosis. Otherwise, it could be thought of as like an isolated psychosis when you do become manic. So the first time it happens to adolescents that are like 18, and it can happen a lot younger too. You can be like 12, but it's just most typical around 18. Um, It's usually really confusing because it'll be unlike anything that's ever happened to you. And uh, that's scary for everybody involved, you know, just not knowing what's going on. So for me, I was between high school and college and – I had a lot of questions as to how the whole experience was going to go. I, when I like reflect back on where I was, this was the summer of like 2008. I have my July 10th birthday. So I turned 18 literally between like high school and college that summer. Um, There were a lot of questions ahead. I was really excited for college, but then I didn't have the greatest ending experience to high school in terms of, like, relationships with friends. I went through a breakup with somebody that kind of threw me for a loop because I just didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. And um, I just spent more and more time staying up later and later and smoking a lot of weed, to be honest. I really – this is when I was at my heaviest – pot smoking phase. So I'm a counselor at a day camp at the time and I'm having like more and more sleepless nights to the point where I'm sure that it kind of escalates into something where it's almost like I feel like I'm living in the Truman show. Okay. Where I'm like being uh watched from everybody like through my computer, through different electronics. There's, like, hired actors and scenarios and little tests all around me, and I'm not sure why. And everything has – everything around me has, like, a special significance, whether it be the number of lights on the ceiling or, like, the colors of um, the cords on the ground or whatever it is. Everything is all adding to, like, a puzzle of, like, some big – it just feels like a really big pressing gravity. Something's, like, coming, something important something dangerous, I got to do something. In all of this, I never felt like depressed or suicidal or anything. I just, just felt paranoia. Paranoid and grandiose, like something really dangerous or bad's going to happen and I'm the only one who can like <laughs> do something about it cuz right. no one else seems to be seeing what I'm seeing. Right. With all these like uh signals that are around me. At its worst, I I came into work and I remember the 
the part of camp that I worked at was called studio where you do acting and music and singing and whatever. And the kids at the day camp I went to were obsessed with a game called freeze dance, which was <laughs> about uh, like you play music, you stop it, and then whoever's like still moving is out. It's just like a, a, a just a very ordinary game, but it requires that you bring out something to play loud music on. So the kids were chanting like boom box, boom box, bring out the boom box, boom box, boom box. And in my – I didn't know this what was happening at the time, but in my manic mind, all I could think was there's a bomb in here. That's the boom box and I oh, need wow. to take care of it. So I remember taking it to the director of camp. And she just kind of looked at me and was like, Drew, I think you're I think you're feeling sick and I think you need to go home. And I was like, mm, no, like, no, you're not seeing like you're not seeing what I'm seeing and everyone's at risk here. And then um, communication goes through to my folks, uh, my parents, who I think luckily my dad was on a summer Friday that day and my mom was available, too. And uh, they picked me up and took me straight to the hospital because from the opinion of 911, when something that intensely detached from reality is happening to your child, Mm -hmm. the safest, most textbook thing to do is to check them into an inpatient program at a hospital. Right. Which means spending at least two weeks under the complete supervision and – it's like sort of it's like being institutionalized into a psych ward yeah. so that you can be studied and basically experimented not on like a gerbil on right. a- any number of like drugs to see what certain things do to you. Anyway, so that led to that and that was to this day the worst experience of my life, um, a complete rock bottom and totally terrifying I keep bringing up the significance of my age because it mattered for this. I was far and away the youngest person in the adult psych ward. Okay. So everyone else was like the next oldest person might have been like 25 or something like that. And everyone from someone who thought they were possessed by like Satan and needed to be exercised to someone who thought that they were a living, breathing vegetable and not actually a human being like – just all, all matters of individuals inside here, and I'll never forget it. So that was the first time that um, I ever encountered mania. But as I keep saying, like I had no idea that's what it was at the time. Um, it was a complete shit show <laughs> and mystery as to like what was going on. Um, and in in those moments of crisis, especially when you have like really caring parents, it's the best to have a culprit or like a scapegoat to point to as right. to like where did this go wrong? What can I attach the blame right. to? It became very – it became like everyone's theory including the one doctor who oversaw things at the psych ward that it was a marijuana-induced psychosis, which <laughs> even when – even at my young age, I was like, absolutely not. Unlikely. <laughs> like, that. like, I know so many people who smoke so much weed and they're not thinking that a boombox is bomb, you right. know, like that, that just, there was a sense of like, fuck this, like, this is already wrong. These efforts are wasted. I was like entrapped in this place to what end? Like, this wasn't even close to possibly knowing like what this could be. Yeah. But you move on. You move on. You take whatever medicine is subscribed, and then you just try to carry on with your life. Um, should I just keep going? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I will say, I mean, it's just – and going back to when I met you and <clears throat> not having known that this happened until later on, it's hard enough for anyone coming out of high school going into college anyway. The fact that you went through that up until a couple of weeks before you, you know, college is crazy. Um, the particularly – traumatic part of being hospitalized was like you really find out who your real friends are right and like like what really fucked me up at that time was like zero of my high school friends came to visit me wow um people that i tried through the years very hard to like earn favor i was class president and like class clown and like, 
uh, I was like the guy who kind of like united the different cliques. Maybe right. that's how I got my votes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when it came down to it, not a single one of them had my back to the point that they would go into the abyss with me and check in on like what the fuck was happening. Right. And then rumors would circulate and it just made me feel extremely self-conscious and doubt myself at a vulnerable time, as I keep saying, when you're headed into your independence to go into college. So that was sort of like a big thread in the abandonment narrative for me right. as it keeps coming back up um, was how it felt to be left behind kind of by high school friends. But my family was there for me through it all. And for that, that was another like – that was the – positive flip side of the lesson was just how completely supportive they were they would visit like almost every day at least one of them to the point that everyone else in the psych ward hated my guts because no one else had that level of like visitation right so i go to college (laughs) and we're just trying to move past it it's like stay off the weed and you'll be good kid and like keep taking these sedatives and uh you know you'll be fine (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, okay, great. And before this, actually, by the way, um, I remember the first question was, could we do this big family trip we had planned to go to Africa in the August before my freshman year, which was this awesome trip that everybody was excited about. Mm-hmm. But it was unclear. It's like, is Drew good to come? You're right. I don't know. But we we did it anyway, and I I remember what medicine I was on at the time. I was on one called Abilify, which is an antipsychotic. Makes sense because that was like the running theory at the time. All that it did to me was like stiffen up my body to the point that like my neck and shoulders were like all tense, and I actually felt like like a stiff kind of like robot. I like wow. I I would describe myself like my dad would be like, "Oh, you like lost your walk, like the normal way I walk." <laughs> was gone for this, like, really kind of tensed-up muscle experience. It was just fucking terrible. And it didn't help because when I was in Africa, certain, like, manic thoughts started to swell up again, like uh, uh, looking for the meaning in, like, the number of birds on a certain tree or, like, finding a secret level that didn't exist on my Game Boy, stuff like that. And But through, like, my parents kind of keeping their finger on the pulse, like – uh, I got some sleep, which was the key. One of the biggest triggers for me, and I think for most bipolars, is not sleeping. Yeah. It never escalated to a full episode. So we got through Africa. Great. And also, that was one of the best trips of my life. Highly recommend <laughs> <laughs> to, to anyone. Um, but on to college. And it was like still everyone was just kind of holding their breath, like hope this experiment goes okay. Like let's let's see. We just had a kind of iffy Africa, yeah. the weirdest hospital experience ever with this psych ward experience. Like off you go to college. And it didn't take long at all for me to start smoking pot again. You know, I was in such like a rebellious attitude at the time and cynical as to everything that happened right. that – I there was like a cannabis festival. <laughs> Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um in uh, the Boston Commons and everyone around me like of all different mental places uh was just smoking weed and I'm like, well, this seems to be the drug that everyone can do. I really have my doubts about this being the reason I'm just going to smoke again. And I did. And then getting caught around that was really tough for my parents because weed was still like the devil in those days um so freshman year was okay i wasn't really going to class like actually being a good student wasn't important to me so much as my independence but like no manic episodes so in that way it was good until the very end well so let me just preface this by saying (laughs) you know uh two of our good friends in our friend group uh, knew Drew, uh, didn't go to high school with him, but knew him before we got to college. So two of them had known kind of inklings of what had happened with you, but never had shared it with any of us who had met Drew when we got there freshman year. And if anyone knows Drew, they know that he's extremely funny, extremely intelligent, very warm, very kind. Um, and we latched onto that hard and we all got really close and we went almost through the whole school year um, up until around April-ish. 
Um, where, you know, look, in terms of behavior or anything that would uh, show us any kind of signs, it wasn't um, atypical. Of, it wasn't um, irregular behavior for any freshman. It was like occasionally skipping class, you know, just having fun going out. Sometimes partying. more than occasionally. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it was, was concerning, but but like until the end, it wasn't anything that was like, oh, what's going on, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. And it was the end that really shined a light on the darkness once again because uh, what I know now that I didn't know then is that bipolar is the disease of the mind that comes from triggers, like a cocktail of factors coming together to get you to a certain place where your mind kicks into an extra gear that others aren't wired to have. And um, so that what was that for me? It was not being able to finish my finals and my projects and it was that combined with, like, a, a conflict I had in my social circle, too. I had a friend I really admired who illuminated something for me that just got me questioning everything and not sleeping as much again. I remember it was our habit to, like, go out to the park and, like, circle up and smoke weed and, like, talk. And he, And for dudes, like... You know, when you get any group talking, especially in college, it's going to end up being like a good amount of gossip. Right. And we're all guys in retrospect. It's kind of like weird to admit. But like you talk shit about people because that's just what you do. It's what human beings do. And then all of a sudden my kind of like very smart, very moral friend who I really admired who never spoke up in those times when we would talk shit was like he kind of blew up and was like, you can't talk about people this way. Like this is – this is so fucked up that you guys do this. Why Why would you think this is okay? Like would you want someone else doing this to you? And just sort of like having that social paranoia again that was reminiscent of yeah. like things going awry with like my high school friends and whatever. I was like, shit, am I doing this all wrong? Do people talk about me? It got me really concerned about like how I was viewed and how I was viewing others and calling that all into a question. Worrying about all these social things while not doing my academics. And while not sleeping. And while not sleeping. So these projects didn't get finished, and then I started to get manic again, not knowing what it was. And uh, I was certain that one of my media teachers was, like, out to get me, like the villain in, like, an elaborate movie trying to specifically undermine my – Big project, which is like a, a social documentary trying to uncover the root of all human like interaction and love, which sounds very grandiose because it is. That's what like manic <laughs> that's like what manic projects are like. <laughs> so um it was it was a close one because it happened right at the end of freshman year and um finally my parents like came to Boston, took me to a doctor who put all this stuff on a whiteboard, circled this, drew an arrow to that, circled something else, drew an arrow over to here, and then wrote one word, and he wrote bipolar and underlined it and pointed at it and said, so it is my opinion, based on what we've seen, that this is your diagnosis. And that was, like, the... That was the first time that it was, like, really hard to, like, surrender to that moment because it it was hard it felt much more accurate than the drug induced marijuana psychosis right. thing but still considering like the magnitude and the gravity of the experience of being manic it just seemed like such an undercut like such a small sticker like little shitty label to slap onto something like that's it bang yeah like one word bipolar that's it that's that's what all this is that's that's what it's always been and um, it felt, like, very belittling in a way that I got, like, extremely emotional. Like, yeah. I broke down into tears. But then quickly I had to accept this. Okay, this <laughs> reading about it, this makes way much more fucking sense for what's happening. This seems way more on point than anything else so far, and this has to be it. So it was at that point that I got closer to taking the medicine that I still take to this day, which is lithium, which is like the gold standard, they say, for bipolar because it's something that's been used for decades. The reason why it was, I think, discovered as an accident that it was helpful to keeping people's moods balanced. Okay. But um, 
it's a simple it's an element it's like on the fucking periodic table lithium <laughs> it's a salt it's and a song it's, by nirvana it's a great song <laughs> by nirvana <laughs> just pointing to the other fantastic artists who are bipolar yeah. um but um it's fairly if it works for you like if it has the right effect on your mind as someone with bipolar and like uh, it doesn't come with other unintended consequences or side yeah. effects. Like it's it's the best because it's it's so simple. It doesn't carry a lot of like damage other than I think like to your kidneys very long term it can. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's lucky if it works and it works Explains for me. Explains the giant water bottle. <laughs> well, I know. I, I'm supposed to hydrate more, but I'm just someone who like really has always liked drinking a lot of liquids anyway. That's good. So that kind of worked out. So uh, so basically that kind of marked from there like some more clarity in my life. I got right. the therapy I needed, the medicine I needed, the support I needed, and then the explanation that I needed to understand what my specific case was for my bipolar. And I went a really long time <laughs> without having another uh, manic episode. That was 2009, the second one at the end of freshman year. It didn't happen again until – November 2016 when Donald Trump got elected, which is like its own story. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. And were you on medication at the time? You know, I was, but I wasn't taking it as... um, Frequently. It wasn't as routine as it should have been. Like, there were nights and times that I was just like, nah, fuck it. Like, this hasn't happened in forever. And that's the tricky thing about keeping up with medicine too is that particularly I think with the bipolar experience it can feel like nothing when you're taking it like nothing is that different it's just like an insurance policy that's supposed to level you out enough to where you have like an extra level of support in case things do hit the fan again so it feels like placebo almost it can feel like nothing it can feel like something that gives me dry mouth makes me piss more you know I'm like so what? Like, so does salt, you know, or, yeah. or whatever. But um, it's not – other than that, you know, I don't feel like a muzzled version of myself. That's why I like it, to be to be honest. Right. But at the same time, like, seven years going by, not much of an issue. Certain, like, hypomanic flare-ups here and there, but nothing even close to dangerous happening. I was like – I kind of had like a distance from my relationship with the mania that like I was I was like toying with it. Like, you still there? Yeah. I'm still here. You still there? I don't know. And then uh, Trump got elected in addition to like me not being as good on my medicine, in addition to kind of things going not so great in my love life that and me not sleeping as much, kind of drinking too much too, yeah. that it came together for another um, manic episode. And the, the good news is this. Like every single time it's happened, it's been cleaner and less severe each time with okay. less penalties to my wife, like right. less loss happening. Um, I didn't lose anything professionally. I still was able to like report in for work like a day later. I didn't like it, it really didn't have that much of a cost because – as you become like a veteran of the disease, you get to – you can whistleblow the the like warning signs much faster right. to ask for the support and the help. And it manifests in all different ways like how people do that. But um, my family was there and my doctor was there and my friends were there. They all could see it. Like I get particularly loud on social media when I'm getting manic in like a weird way where I almost like want to talk in code – um, <laughs> and it, it's just like from having the level of experience with it and having friends and family, loved ones who understand, you can identify it quicker, get the help you need to lessen the peak of the mania. Because right. the, the quicker you can get it to flatten out and come down, the less of a danger it is. Um, the last thing, um, so that's a lot of overview on my backstory, but like, uh, the last thing I want to say that makes me lucky, because I I can't stress enough like how different everybody's experience with all mental health diseases are. Like it's really hard for everyone to work to the definition of the bucket that they're thrown into with every everything, right. every diagnosis. 
Um, but um, I'm lucky because I don't really exhibit the symptoms of a traditional bipolar depression, which is described as like not even having lapses or moments where you can laugh or smile. Like I don't get depressed to that level. My depression is more physical exhaustion that comes at the tail end of a mania where I just need to recover from just being so sapped of energy of what it's like being in that overdrive mode for extended periods of time. And then at the same time, like I'm sure a lot of bipolar people could listen to this and say, I've never felt like Truman Show level things, you know. And that's the experience of someone like me with type type one who has like a higher – manic peak but then a not as intense depression trough and um and everyone's different so i'm lucky that one i've never had any suicidal problems instead it's all about survival actually and like protecting people and really projecting what's going on inside of me to the entire world is like i have to save something or like save everyone superhero yeah exactly it's super Mm -hmm. grandiose and number two uh um that yeah, I don't have like debilitating depression issues either. Yeah. That's been lucky for career stuff, right? Especially. And what about um, your anxiety levels? How how does that come into play? Um, I think I have a healthy amount of anxiety, and then that I think anxiety can be a good thing. You know, anxiety is there to kick you in the ass when you are cutting class and sleeping in and right. saying like. You should be doing something right now. Like I I don't have – I wouldn't describe my anxiety as like a as like a really debilitating piece of the puzzle. It's just something that's in there. Right. It's nothing that's been ever too much. Yeah, and nothing that really comes out of nowhere. Um, you know, the most anxiety I had was social anxiety okay. when it came to being popular – and, like, being liked and not abandoned by anybody. Right. Um, that was it. But then I'm sort of, like, just through therapy and spending time with, like, the people who really matter and learning, like, what my values are around that, that's really been mitigated, too. So that was once, like, my biggest anxiety and now not so big a deal. So um, when it comes to taking your medication – what when do you take it um morning and night um it's it's uh something that has a half life in your system okay. lithium so i just take it you know when i brush my teeth in the morning and when i brush my teeth at night okay that's pretty much it it's best if you do it like 12 hours apart but no one can really do it this religiously like systemized i'm not that level like ocd where that needs to happen right so, but that's the idea, morning and night. And in terms of trying different medicines, have you ever tried any others? Well, yeah, there was the entire road of trials with, like, failed medicines in the beginning, and they all fucking sucked. Yeah. <laughs> to where I'm really cautious about medicine, to be honest. Like, man, the stuff that gives you the outcome you want in terms of handling your mental illness at the cost of adding like all these other terrible symptoms it's it just sounds so complicated and i'm glad that all i'm up against is like i said like dry mouth and maybe having to use the bathroom more but um no i i took a, a, i took a, my worst experience is abilify that i told you about right there was another time that I had to take gabapentin, which is a pretty heavy sedative. There were a bunch that I tried um, in the beginning because it was just like throw them at the wall, see right. what sticks. And you didn't have a set diagnosis. Yeah. And sedatives for me were not the answer. Antidepressants, not really. And antipsychotics, nope. So it was this mood stabilizer of the lithium that ended up being the right one for me. That's been the case for me now for like 10 years. And do you still see the same therapist? Yeah, that's the cool thing. Um, I love my therapist, and I love therapy in general. So I just moved here from L.A. um, end of this January. It's now, like, late December. And uh, 
I I still video chat with the same guy because I don't want to restart the relationship. Yeah. And I expect with the evolution of technology, when he becomes like a 3D hologram, <laughs> that things will be even better right, as, sure. time, as time goes on. Um, so I, I don't want to start over with that. There's a talk doctor component, which is a psychologist, and then there's a psychiatrist who's mm-hmm. responsible for your managing your, your medicine. I'm switching over as of this week, actually, to a new psychiatrist. That's been like a, a less consistent road for me. Um, and I, oh my God, I should tell you about this one psychiatrist I had who was just like, he was kind of like the, I don't know if I ever told you about this guy in no, LA. But we won't mention names, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> he was kind of like, uh, the Saul Goodman of therapy. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> this guy was very intense. He'd, really? he'd be like, he'd be like, young man, like you, you gotta be like, like fucking the best of them. Right. Like you're in your top physical shape. You can really like go after whoever you need. Like. You're only like he would just like try to talk me up and like he would just vicariously try to like live through my sex life in this really odd way. And you got to picture this guy who kind of looks like <laughs> Saul. Bob, Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, Bob. Wait, wait. So was he in LA? You would see him in person? He, so like, I yeah, he was in person about once a month, the psychiatrist. So like, like literally, I would just be like, can you give me a new script for my fucking lithium? And he would try to come in and like coach me up to being because i'm pretty sure he was bipolar. so la i'm pretty sure he was bipolar as well he had this whole hollywood background to his family so he was kind of like showy to begin with Uh and he was like the one doctor that broke off and did his own thing and this guy like i would record our conversations just for material because first off you're allowed to do that as the patient (laughs) jack Jack before you look so (laughs) flabbergasted (laughs) by me but like I think I still have some of them, and they are ridiculous, and guaranteed they will they will make it into a script one day. So when it comes to doctors, there's totally like the gamut of experiences that one can have. But you know, since my talk doctor provides like most of the the wealth of um, you know help that I need when it comes to. Uh, like actual talk therapy. Yeah. The psychiatrist is more just like a wild card for me. And I just need someone who's kind of like on top of my medicine and that's it. Right. Not in your business. Yeah. Too much. (laughs) Otherwise it's a little redundant. Right. You know. And you don't want two different doctors giving you two different directions in life kind of. I think sometimes there's some merit to like a second opinion, but I trust this guy who's helped me for 10 years now that not 10 years. Uh, close, like six or seven, that, uh, you know, I don't need to really fuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. So how was the rest of college after you were – because I know you didn't have another manic episode, but – Yeah. So, yeah, the tricky thing with bipolar is that it's really associated with dual diagnosis, which means – you both have a mental disorder and an addiction problem. Mm-hmm. Like it's very often people with addictive personalities. And we know that I used to really like weed, <laughs> but I also like used to really, really be almost like an out of control drinker. Right. Um, to where – and we went to like a pretty strict school too, almost like Massachusetts Puritan level strict where like if you were caught with like bottles in your dorm room, it was like a, a strike one out of three and you're out type mm-hmm. of deal. And by end of sophomore year, I was already in like such disciplinary shit with just being caught for drinking. I think at my worst, I was caught like passed out in an elevator, something like that. Wow. Um, and – Yeah, I nearly got thrown out, and this was all to do with not being a serious enough student and partying too much. Um, And basically by hanging on by a thread, by surviving these disciplinary hearings that were happening the end of my sophomore year of college, I had like a rock bottom experience. Like I, uh, I, I could see the timeline of like, what if this all was a fucking failed experiment? Maybe mm-hmm. my parents shouldn't have had this confidence in me that I could actually go and do it after my really problematic summer before college. Like, 
would this be all for nothing? Like a complete fucking waste of money and time. Mm -hmm. And uh, in actuality, like I was given a second chance by not being suspended, just thrown off campus. And I turned it around completely. I became like a much more serious student. I was operating like more to my full abilities. I got more involved in extracurriculars. I pursued like my love of directing more than I ever had before and really tried to like make the most of it. But it really took like an experience of almost bottoming out and like being shaken like that to wake up. Like a slap in the face. I remember it as um, it was the last day of school. Literally, we were all moving out and Drew had this board that he had to go in front of and we didn't know i remember that when you left you had like a piece of paper that had like some information on it and you're like well i'm off like to, off for the verdict and we were like what the fuck we're like we don't know what's gonna happen of sophomore and year? this yeah. was the end of sophomore year and we had all lived together freshman year we all like quickly integrated and bonded and we basically lived together but we were in different floors of the dorm uh, sophomore year we all lived together so we were just like deep in it and um i didn't know if, if i was gonna see i mean i was gonna see drew again but not at school and I don't know what the fuck was going to happen. And he came back and he had this kind of sigh of relief, this look of relief on his face and we knew it was going to be okay. And I remember day one of uh, junior year, you had your own place you were, and you had already moved everything in and everything was super organized and it was already clear. I remember like I was worried. I was like, what is it going to be like Drew living by himself? I didn't know. And I remember like after the first week, I was like, this is actually the best thing that's ever happened to him because you finally had your own space. I feel like you needed that. Like in a way, you needed to get away from, for whatever reason, the the environment that we were in, which was like all deeply embedded in like very much that freshman, sophomore year mentality. And you were the first one to like really embrace it and like you had your shit together and it was like, oh, okay, maybe this is just like part of what needed to happen. I remember thinking that. Like this is part of what needed to happen for Drew. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I – was so I loved being in like a six person suite and having like my community of of friends that your bros my bros that truly <laughs> had my back way better than let's say like my high school friends yeah. did and uh I'm like an incredibly social extroverted person always better with others always better I'm like a team yada yada <laughs> but like uh I didn't have a choice at the time it was like it all had to happen so quickly that it's like, okay, time to live alone. And I was like, okay, let's see. This is probably going to be hard, but I'm. it's going to be good because I'll just – it'll be me and checking <laughs> in with me and, like, making sure that I'm, like, a new guy now. <laughs> and by the way, we, at the same time – sorry to cut you off, Drew. We were all still kind of doing the same thing where we were all living together but in, like, off campus. So yeah. we were still in that. Drew was the first one to get his own, like, place, um, live by himself, all that. Take a page out of his book. Oh, yeah. I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I had then. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I recommend it. I mean, it's one of those things that's easier said than done because, of course, you have to, like, pay a lot more fucking rent when you right. live alone. But um, it's it's great for having the you time to challenge yourself and hold, your more account hold yourself more accountable to things. But there's also, like, the, the relationship aspect of, you know, I feel like there are some lessons there, too, with when you're someone dealing with mental health problems and you you go through the journey of, like, what type of partner should I be with? And I remember when I did live alone for junior year, it was right when things were getting more serious with this girl. And so she was great. She was super committed to me and in a lot of ways awesome. But what was kind of tough was, like, I was her one and only project. Like, right. Her obsession and passion was kind of like fixing and monitoring me and for me, her. And it was very like almost like toxically dependent on right. each other. And Mothering I, one another. I ended up seeing my squad a lot less that yeah. I was like, this is not going to work. Um, so Squad was worried. Yeah, squad was worried. <laughs> squad was missed. So I had to um, – evaluate that and it was the right thing too and then there was a period of living alone with no girlfriend and then truly like feeling more alone that was probably where it was the most valuable yeah but now we're switching to the topic of like no no it's fine yeah i mean i mean it's important to know how to be alone yeah no, no matter what your mental state yeah that's something that i had to i learned you know more recently even more recently than you of like actually having to just be with yourself and like live with yourself and love and yourself like, yeah there's something that you learn in doing that 
Yeah. And maybe in a, in a way I was avoiding that for like a long, long time. But you sir, and I think a lot of us were in college and you were the, the first one who was like really and, navigating that and, and embrace that. By the way, now I love it. Have my one bedroom finally in Manhattan as of this year. <laughs> and it's just it's just the best. Yeah. Um I love it. Um I also love therapy and I think uh I think there's been a lot of great steps forward with reducing the stigma around therapy and yeah. mental health. And I know that's kind of the mission of this podcast. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring in my take on that too. I would love that. Um, just this is like a true or false. True or false. When you're interested in somebody to like date them, and they tell you that they like work out and are physically active and exercise, that is attractive. True. Mm-hmm. True. True. So why wouldn't that be the case for someone's mental well-being? Too? I agree. Completely agree. Uh, these are like it's like an equally important if not more important part of maintaining like your system what's the implication of all this let's put aside all the superficial like six-pack abs and like you know uh tiny waist on a girl thing stuff and just make it about like the real the real implication is like this person cares enough to take care of themselves to be stable for me yeah and for them yeah. right you know stability in this unstable world that we have right now yeah with this president and everything um, is more and more the commodity and the desire right now. And if uh, uh, you can demonstrate that by really taking the time and work to address your mind and body, body and mind, mm-hmm. then why not? That's like perfect. Right. It's just there's still people that are – taking cues from their parents' generation or even their grandparents' generation that are just a little ass-backwards on this, and and it's a shame. But, yeah. like, it's just better for everybody involved if uh, everyone feels more certain and stable of their system, body, and mind. That's kind of my take on it. It's probably... Can I get an amen? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably because... Um, you know, working out of the gym, it's very – the results are obvious. You could see them. And when you're working on your mind, it's not obvious to anyone but yourself or maybe the people close to you. But if you – I mean, I, I completely agree. I think therapy is amazing. And I think why not – if you want to make your body look as good as possible, why not make your mind as good as possible so you can be the best person you can be? It makes you a better person when you understand yourself. Um, but I think people are really good at pretending and putting on sort of a front that they're this certain way and they're okay and they can mask their pain or it's kind of embarrassing for them to talk about it and they want to seem like they're okay. Yeah. It's hard to keep your, um, your blubber gut, like, trucker's belly invisible (laughs) invisible but you can keep like a lot of your mental issues invisible especially through social media you know through like the version of yourself that you project to other people um and again because it's not an appearance thing it's like it's almost more it is more important than than like actual appearances like what is actually happening inside and what's going on with your day-to-day mental you know state yeah and we talked about it in the first episode, but, like, I certainly had a stigma against it for no reason. For literally no reason. I was like, I'm fine. I don't need any help. That was my <laughs> mentality for so long. And Drew's become the go-to person for – like, we just have open conversations about – sometimes we'll just talk about therapy or, like, a funny thing that happened. Yeah. But I feel totally comfortable talking with him about that stuff. Or with some of my other friends, maybe it's not – I wouldn't feel as open to talking to them about it because they – aren't in therapy or they wouldn't get it certainly there's been times where i've been on dates very recently where like i'm like at what point do i bring it up or do i even bring it up at all that like i see a therapist and what what significance does that have like it should just be casual but then i find myself being like i don't want that to be a red flag and then it's like well then that's a red you know that's the red flag that you're afraid to bring that up so it's a whole i mean if the person's not okay with you seeing a therapist then they're obviously not the right person right Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. i throw it in there 
just right off. You just the throw bat. it right in there. Yeah, high I'm, stuff. I'm I'm more inclined to get open about that to um, someone I'm with personally than um, than a boss. Yeah, for, for instance. Well, definitely. What's, what's it like professionally? As you started, you know, you work. Um, for those who don't know, he works as a freelance editor, writer, producer, and he works for a uh, program. I don't know if we want to mention it. Do we want to mention it? That's fine. Uh, good plug luck. it. Plug it. Plug it. Uh, <laughs> great uh, uh, new media news program called Good Luck America on Snapchat. Um, and Drew's been working. What is your sweatshirt? Oh. Snapchat sweatshirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Drew's been working there for three years now? Um, yeah, for a while. Since 2016. Yeah. <laughs> and Drew's won an, an award for it. He's done great work. Um, and certainly around the time of the election up until now, as it's just gotten crazier and crazier on the political landscape, uh, Drew's been kind of at the forefront of trying to capture this stuff for the uh, millennial generation, and he's done a great job. So certainly he's found his his uh, place in the professional world, but I wonder uh, what it was like going into that. Uh, when, if you disclose any of your um, you know uh, mental health background to them up front or how you – went about that because it could be a totally different thing than even being in a relationship with someone personally yeah um my stance on that was i'm gonna trust myself to disclose that information at the time that it becomes necessary with like an incoming hypomania or manic thing right um the cool thing about having my own business and various clients and whatever is there's no like person to report to to grill me on wait what's up you have this uh mental thing that could possibly get in the way right i'm sure people are ostracized for that all the time but i think there's also like legal protections you can take from preventing that i'm luckily not having to deal with that but to the extent that it it will get in the way and matter to an employer or manager or supervisor when stuff gets rough, it will if you can't clock into work and you, you aren't healthy enough or in a good enough place to do your job. Right. So I remember the last time it happened um, when Trump got elected in my, my most recent manic episode – my mom came out to California to help me to make sure that I was taking care of myself and sleeping, which was awesome. But I didn't I, – I reported into work every day even mm-hmm. when I was feeling like that because I was so, so, so um, obsessed with not losing my job. And it was exacerbated even more by like the – purpose i was serving as like a docu-journalist to right. be sure that i was like still doing my civic mission of reporting right. <laughs> reporting on trump and stuff and it happened to be that the subject matter that you were reporting on was part of what informed you know, yeah which paranoia. was which was an odd experience triggered yeah yeah those things yeah um but you know so i i had one day where i had to leave early because i wasn't getting anything done and i was getting super emotional and the next day, I just came in the morning a little bit more level-headed after get managing some sleep and working up the courage to say, look, uh, this is what's up with me. I, <laughs> this is how the conversation went down, and this is so funny to me in, in <laughs> retrospect, by the way. Uh, this particular manager I wasn't a, a huge fan of, by the way. But I was like, um, so, hey, um, sir, I'm sorry about, like, what happened yesterday as you know, I'm a very passionate individual, and uh, more than that, I'm bipolar. Um, this whole election really threw me for a loop. Some things have gone on in my personal life, too. It came together, and it got to a place where I wasn't at my best professionally. I didn't mean to freak anybody out, and there's nothing I want to do more than put my energy into, like, doing my job well and uh, taking care of everything here. So I promise, like, I'll, I'll be straightening everything out now. And he was like, hold on, so you're uh, you're bipolar? And I was like, yes. And he was like, so the type where the type where you just have like boundless energy? And I was like, um, type one where you have like – I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. Right. But yeah. yeah, you're like, it's not a superpower. Yeah, and he's, <laughs> like, he's like, oh, so the type where you're like super productive. And I was like, 
no, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't like stigmatizing. Yeah, and wish that someone would have this so that they could like fucking edit at three times the normal speed or whatever. Yeah, but, uh, he was like looking at it like, oh. Like, if, as long as you're not, like, bedridden and depressed, maybe this will be good for your output or something right. like that. And I remember just being like, this guy is a douche. Wow. But, you know, bottom line was this. I was able to keep working and that was that was good. Yeah. Um, the surprising thing about having, like, a cool partner, the co-creator of that show, is, like, a longtime CNN journalist who switched over to Snapchat's head of news and, like, is very bright and has, like, such a good handle on perceiving, like, the news objectively and not getting swept up in the, like, emotionality of everything and just Mm -hmm. sort of reporting the facts for what they are. That, learning from that has helped me stay so level-headed about everything that's gone on to where I don't, I enjoy, like, doing um, work around the news and U.S. politics right now. It doesn't, I don't feel like I'm at risk of a trigger or something bad right. happening again. The other odd thing about it is like when I had my manic episode after the election, I felt like every possible fear and paranoia that I was having at that time was concentrated into such a short period of time mm-hmm. that I sort of like intuited everything that could possibly go wrong with Trump, including like the Muslim ban, including like all of his bullshit And then as it would happen, like up until today, like when, you know, more and more comes out, I'm just like, of course, like this is Mm -hmm. what I was all feeling compounded into that terrible experience back then. Nothing really surprises me anymore. So it's kind of like an armor that I have now, you know, and it's it's been fine. And as a journalist, you have to remain um, unbiased as well, don't you? Yeah, I mean, Trump's a great guy. <laughs> no, um, uh, no, you you, you have to keep emotionality out right. of it. That's true. And um, I think so far, so good on that front. Um, okay. Taking a little bit of a step sideways here. Um, so I remember one time I went over to Drew's. This was after college. And he's like, you have to watch this show. Um, it's called Homeland. And the main character has bipolar and you were like, this is the most accurate depiction in the pilot episode of what I felt like I went through. So I watched it and I was like, Oh wow. And then I got hooked onto that show and watching that and seeing that character, particularly in the first season, I, I kind of stopped watching it a couple seasons down the line, but how uh, her storyline revolved around her bipolar um, kind of manic episode that she has towards the end of the season and how she feels like she's perfectly in touch with, what is happening and has like a a finger on the pulse of what's going on. And she kind of does in a lot of ways. She's like dead, right. But she also gets gaslighted for other reasons. Um, I remember there were times when you're in freshman year, when you were going through what you were going through and we were all trying to figure out what was happening. A lot of things that, that you were talking about would happen, but like very randomly. And we'd be like, Oh, we don't know what, like, (laughs) It was such a weird thing because you, I remember one specific thing was you kept saying follow the Red Bull. One of the one of the things you would say is because um, <laughs> probably because I wasn't sleeping and like needed more. Okay, Red right. Bull. <laughs> so so it'd be things like, but yeah, that becomes like a mantra in like the the grand pattern of the manic episode is like the significance of the Red Bull. Like, right. Oh a lot God. of significance in things uh, that didn't seem to carry any significance with us. So. This is one example, but it was basically this two-week period where we're, we still weren't quite sure what was happening. And um, Drew actually came to us like halfway through the second week and was very emotional and was like, uh, listen, here's what's going on. Um, to two of our friends, he was like, you guys might know about this. You heard about this. But to everybody else, like the, I was kind of diagnosed with this thing and I'm, I'm still figuring it out. But don't worry. I'm fine. And we were like, OK. So that was like we, – we knew that something was happening. And then I remember we went outside and we were walking. It was like the first nice day. And Drew kept saying, follow the Red Bull, follow the Red Bull. We're like, Drew, it's okay, man. Like, there's no Red Bull. And he, we were on a street corner, and he stopped, and he just pointed. And he was dead serious. And I was like, what is it? And he's pointing to two Red Bull uh, – have you ever seen those Mini Cooper yeah. Red Bull cars <laughs> yeah. with giant Red Bull things? And they were, like, parked next to each other at the stoplight, like, right next to Drew. And he's like, see? He's like, follow that. And we were like, what? <laughs> and he starts, like, walking after them. And I was like, what is going on? It was like – there was a couple of things that happened like that where – Wow. I don't know. It was it was uh <laughs> it was hard to navigate around because it felt like at certain times like things that you were talking about would totally like, come yeah, true. Yeah, it's it. this whole experience of having like 
a lens of confirmation bias when you're so wired thinking about the significance of something that, like, you are bound to find it and yeah. see it somewhere. And that can be, like, the incredibly confusing slash intoxicating slash, like, crazy, beautiful, complicated things about being manic is, like, sometimes, like, you're on to something. You're just super intuitive. Sometimes, like, you're soaking up the environment and, like, you you actually could glean something useful. You notice what other people don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's also the kind of thing where, like, a broken clock's right twice a day. Right. And, like, you just got to be – Something sticks. You just got to be careful. Like, uh, just like Carrie Matheson's not going to, like, protect Homeland Security with her grandiose, like, manic revelations the same. Like, you probably won't, you know, uh, uncover, like, something really useful or healthy at the bottom of your – manic project which all the time like barely ever get finished anyway right all that's to say um drew basically my initial uh kind of uh intoxication intoxication with drew was that he was able to uh (laughs) i came from a place where uh we went to a a high school where it was very much like you had to wear time blazer straight laced uh i still hadn't figured out my creative voice and when I met Drew it was very clear that he had he had a creative voice and that he was highly creative and that his output was just not at a place where I was at and and I latched onto that and I wonder what it's like now being a creative person having gone through all this and navigating kind of because there's a lot of creative people that that deal with mental illness and a lot of creative people that are bipolar and it's like what is what is bipolar and what is manic and what is like a creative flow and how do you navigate that oh yeah well i would say for myself and i hope for anybody else listening who has bipolar or like something mental going on is like don't don't try not to regret it or trade out what your makeup and your wiring and your story is because everybody wants uh a unique and rich and uh um, a perspective that has had a lot of challenges come its ways. That's what's the most interesting. Yeah. Nobody wants to listen to boring or perfect or ordinary. Um, that doesn't mean like act out on your impulses to have more unhealthy experiences to inspire yourself. But it means like not running away from the the hard times that you've had to inspire any number of news stories or right. even like autobiographical stuff. I think it's great. I think there's a shortage of characters and stories about people with bipolar. I think Carrie Matheson in Homeland is okay. I think Bradley Cooper in Silver Linings mm. Playbook is all right. I think some are, for the most part, they're fucking terrible. They're like um, Billy in Six Feet Under, the brother of like, right. or like uh, Helga Pataki in Hey Arnold. It's just kind of like. There's no – there's nothing fruitful in these depictions, but um, that's why I call upon all artists who have this history to to change that and show that not only do you have an interesting, fruitful, rich story to tell, um, it's, it's unique too and it's important. It's like uh, we're in an environment now of inclusivity of trying to get a diverse – kind of stories out there in the ether and i think it's just important to have mental health diversity in there too i agree i saw someone tweet the other day um it was like one of the film twitter uh commentaries but it was like someone basically asked the question what when is it going to happen where a main character in a tv show or movie has a uh mental illness or some kind of disability that's that doesn't encompass who they are as a character like it's just part of the way that they would have like a hairstyle or be wearing like a different kind of jacket as a a character why wouldn't they be able to have this kind of trait oh that's so important i think that's the same as what um gay people ask for when they look for characters the same as like any number of minorities ask for right like if you don't make that the central crux or conflict of the story it helps normalize it and familiarize it in a way that like 
you do get something rich out of it. It's 100%. just like like yeah. everything to do with mental health. It's just part of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's not the defining aspect of your life. It's just a certain facet of this very beautiful diamond that you are that's going to like shine a little bit brighter because you are you. It's not that little piece alone isn't the story, but it'll it'll glow in a way that like other people's won't because you have that. Yeah. That's great. Beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> so why don't you write that down the right above your toilet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, you're a very self-aware person at this point. Obviously, you've gone through therapy and you sort of accepted yourself. How did you get to that level? I mean, obviously therapy, but, you know. Out of necessity. Like, I'm an incredibly ambitious person and I come from the philosophy of, It's the normal human self-defense response to try to bury and suppress and ignore our deepest, darkest problems. Like hide them, especially the invisible ones, right? Um, And my philosophy is don't do that at all. Throw them on the table. Hold them to a magnifying glass. um, Get really close to them and love them. Like get familiar with them to the place that you actually value them and love them. Yeah. To, and then uh, use that to know what you got going on. I kind of think like in this game of life, everybody's dealt like a different hand and some hands are really shitty. But, you know, the best games are the ones where you like overcome the shitty hand and win from some big like come from behind anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, totally. the, like, like the last turn of the flop. <laughs> yeah. You know, on beats the, the guy with uh, on the pocket ri- aces. The underdog. Yeah. On, on the river you get the flush or something like that. Yeah. It, it, like, <laughs> for, you know, that that really good cross section of poker players and mental health people listening are, gonna, <laughs> are, gonna, are really going to love this. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Like, <laughs> I I never wanted to be something that would limit myself or those around me. But the way that you overcome that is uh, by accepting it yeah. and knowing that it's all part of the package and uh, living with it and hopefully growing from it. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, how – so now knowing you uh, as, as I do, uh, you're in a – more long-term serious relationship that um kind of the foundations were before your first episode and (laughs) have now picked up where you've gone through all this what is it like now being in a more serious relationship uh and navigating through oh it's it's honestly poetic how it all came together like this was the girl that broke up with me before anything went wrong the summer before college, simply because it's not always a great idea to stay together going into college when you're going to different colleges. I agree. Um, everyone, like, everyone can see that. And I, I had a hard time with it at the time, but now I'm like really thankful for it because this same person that I was hurt by losing back then, I'm now able to be with as like a much more polished, fully formed, healthy version of myself. Yeah. And that's the that is the version of Drew that I would want to be with her and nothing else. So it's like it's it's great because she's very empathetic, understanding and loving too, and still respectful of my independence and my friendships too. That it's just perfect. It's yeah. like a, I'm very happy with that. And the truth is, when you have a variable like bipolar, or you have like a sort of less predictable career path like yeah. film and TV where there's no clock in, clock out, nine to seven. Um, it's wonderful to have support systems that are like built into your foundation, yeah. whether that's something be stable, family, friends, uh, partner or therapist. And if possible, all of the above, like yeah. it's just, it's just, it lets you move around and take the risks that you need to be that ambitious person that you are. Yeah. And how did you guys reconnect? <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> oh, classic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. She was just like, uh, if you're in New York, let's get some coffee. And I was like, never thought this would happen. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to come they in. They always come back. I'm going to come <laughs> in ready. Like, yeah. you know, and then uh, it just, I haven't looked back since. I will say, first kiss. At my apartment. Oh. Right? <laughs> no, the first re-kiss. 
Oh, yeah. well, yeah, the first recast after all this happened. <laughs> or real I feel cast. proud of that, yeah. <laughs> um. Jack's been a wonderful – I got to say, too, this is, like, special for me, too, because uh, Jack was, like, very much at the forefront of that new unit of friends I had in college yeah. who was there to support me when shit was getting bad. He was, like, very much at the front of it. I'm proud that you and Jack are doing this now. It just is – it's the greatest thing. So I hope I can do more stuff like it. Of course. We can always have you back on, too. Oh, we have to. I would love to have, like, um, if we get a couple other of the guests that we've talked to, or maybe if you guys have, like, a roundtable discussion. Yeah, I would love that. As we sit at a round, literally a roundtable. Yeah. Um, it could be fun to take questions from, like, online from people with the various absolutely. illnesses, too, and just sort of give it our best shot. Yeah. Absolutely. Ideas. Ideas flowing. <laughs> Creativity is flowing. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's, that's a very cool story that you kind of, it's like what's meant to be will be. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting that the, it's almost the universe put you in that position to not be to, with this girl until you were ready to be the man she deserved and the person you deserve to be. Which is very high concept, but also true. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's like just the type of idea that can, you would have. Se- can seem really grandiose yeah. or almost manic but i i don't regard it like that at all or just I, romantic it's romantic <laughs> no, I, I i i do maintain that perspective on things because that's just like my zest for yeah. life you got to be gracious that you're here it's a positivity oh yeah and so i i do look at it that way it's it's nice yeah yeah well, thanks so much for coming on, Drew. Thank you, guys. Seriously. We'll definitely have you back. And thank you, Jack, for arranging this. Was... Oh, I just want – I'm just glad that Drew is honest and open, and uh, I just wanted to give him a place where he could tell a story. Truly. I was happy to do it. Would be happy to come back and, and keep it up. I hope this continues to grow and grow. Thank oh, we're, you. We're going to have you back for sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys.